The story you are about to hear is based on eyewitness testimony and evidence collected before, during, and after an actual paranormal investigation. In some instances, the names and locations have been changed to protect the identities of persons involved. Forget it. Possible is probable, and the unknown can be known. This is the realm of the weird. It was the summer of 2003, and I had spent the past seven months researching the experiences of Dan and Susan Anderson, who had originally contacted me in the fall of 2002. The Andersons had recently bought a house, and they said they were experiencing what seemed to be a haunting. Cupboard doors opening and slamming, lights turning on and off, and curious voices whispering in the darkness. They said they felt that most of the happenings were centered around a study on the second floor. After conducting interviews with the couple, I agreed to handle their case. They assured me that there was no reason to rush, as they felt neither threatened nor frightened. I told them that I would contact them again after I had thoroughly researched the history of the property and any potential natural environmental influences. I told them to keep records of anything that they thought wasn't normal or anything strange, and of course to call me if they felt that the activity in the house was increasing. Over the course of the next few weeks, I located the names of the three previous families who had owned the home prior to the Andersons. I tracked down the family of the original owners from when the home had been built in the 1940s. By that family, I was informed that there had been a death in the home in 1956, but no one had ever experienced anything that would have been considered paranormal or supernatural. The second owners of the home had also never experienced anything strange, so I was left wondering if the third and most recent former owners would have anything to add to my investigation. I tracked down Rebecca Morgan, the daughter of the former owners, and was instantly taken aback by her harsh tones and unwillingness to discuss anything about the time she spent in that house. I knew that since leaving the house her parents had passed away, so I was entering an emotional and delicate situation. I left my card and told her she could call me at any time if she changed her mind. I updated the Andersons frequently with small and somewhat uninteresting information, all the while, they continued to experience the knocks, creaks, and whispers which had made them contact me in the first place. Some cursory investigations of the home provided no additional details or information, so I informed the Andersons that, although I would still be working on their case, until more data came my way, and since they weren't in any dire need, I was moving their case to the back burners of my files. After returning home from a long-needed vacation, I found on my answering machine a call from Dan Anderson. Hey John, this is uh, Dan. You could just give me our call. Uh, it just seems like there's stuff getting worked up a little bit more. Things are starting to happen a little bit more around here. Uh, 
Just give me a call whenever, thanks. I checked the timestamp of the call and saw that he had left the message two days ago. The next message on the answering machine was from Rebecca Morgan, the daughter of the former owners. She said she had changed her mind and was ready to talk about her time in the house. I called Dan and told him I would be over later in the week, and then I called Rebecca and set up a meeting for the next day. We met at a local coffee house. I could tell that Rebecca was uneasy speaking about her past, and I told her that if she wasn't comfortable, she could wait. She explained that she had been going to a therapist, and her therapist had explained to her that to confront the issues of her youth, and that talking to people was part of moving forward. She immediately explained that she had never experienced any ghostly phenomenon while living in the house, but that her life there had been filled with real, daily terror. She told me of her father's battle with alcohol and her mother's struggle with prescription medications. Throughout her life in the house, she had been abused both mentally and physically. She said her mother would often berate and bully her, while her father was prone to locking her for hours on end in a bedroom closet. After she was old enough to move out, her parents sold the house and retired to Florida, where they were killed in a drunk driving accident. We talked for about an hour, and as we parted ways, Rebecca seemed less sad and perhaps a little relieved at confronting her past, even if it was just to a stranger. Upon returning home, I saw that there was a new message from Dan. Something had happened, he said. There had been a loud banging and what he described as a scream. I returned his call and told him that I was coming over. I sat with Dan and Susan and listened to them recount the day's events. After they had calmed down, I told them about my meeting with Rebecca. I asked Dan if we could look around the house again and specifically look over the second floor study. He came with me and, whether it be my imagination or something more, the room felt uncomfortable. I asked Dan if we could check over the closets in both of the bedrooms. After we had searched both the master bedroom closet and the first floor guest bedroom closet, I still couldn't shake the feeling that I was missing something. So Dan, Susan, and I spent the next hour looking over my notes and files about their case. It was in those files that I found what I was looking for. A blurry Xerox copy of a floor plan that showed a closet that had once been in the study upstairs. I pointed out the closet on the floor plan to Dan and Susan, and after the three of us returned upstairs, we found where drywall had been put up over the opening. Can we rip this wall out? I asked. Dan said yes and went to get some tools. Within a few minutes of his return, the wall was taken down and we were looking into a closet. I got down on my knees and with a flashlight, I found marks from a child's fingernails scraped along the interior baseboards. The far side of the closet had small drawings of dogs, cats, and a flower, and next to them, scratched into the wood, was the name Becky. The three of us were horrified at the thought of a child being locked in this closet for who knows how long, hours or days. The anger and fear and sadness that that child would have felt in that small space was unimaginable. We sat and discussed the events of the night, the closet. Rebecca's life, and as Dan stated how that closet would never again have a door. As I drove home, I couldn't help but have the feeling that I wouldn't hear of any more occurrences from Dan and Susan, that the opening of that forgotten closet of terror had somehow released whatever pain was trapped in the house. Indeed, after that night, Dan and Susan never experienced anything strange in their house again. 
Many people think that the spirit of a tortured person can only start to manifest after that person has passed away. But it seemed in this instance, the person who was still very much alive and living a normal life, somewhere else there was a part of her trapped in her past in a closet living in the realm of the weird. Yeah.